see you. Um, thank you, Christian, for introducing me, and um, for everyone for having me here. Um, it was a long flight, and and then there was drinking, and um, I'm better now. Um, and in the in the vein of drinking, I just wanted to. I'm from the South, uh, in in the United States, um, and in the South, we enjoy drinking mint juleps. Um, in the summer. This is a mint julep served in a classic pewter cup. Um, ideally, you would sit out on your wraparound porch and, uh, you know, with the, with the screens and watch the horses go by. I don't know. Anyway, so when I was putting together this presentation, I thought, ooh, mint, mint julep, yay. And then I went to the speaker dinner and then I stayed out until 4.30 in the morning and so water's been way more my friend than the mint juleps for the last 36 hours, but uh, thank you, Francis and Alex and Jake for getting me into that trouble. Um, also, when I was looking for pictures of water, I found a picture of a dog opening a car door, so just thought that was cool. Um, I, like Christian said, I work for Boku. It's a company in Boston, and uh, we do training. I do a lot of training. We also do consulting, and, and perhaps most importantly, we are huge supporters of open source. Um, if I don't have client work to be doing, um, it's this kind of unspoken expectation that I am doing something good for the open web, um, that I'm doing something good for open source in that time. Um, and. You know, there was some conversation after David's talk this morning, uh, David Saunders' talk this morning, um, and Christian, you asked during the, um, during the Q&A portion, you say, you know, company, why do developers have to do this in their free time? Like, why aren't companies supporting developers um, in their paid time to do this? Because certainly companies benefit from open source and giving people a little bit of time to, to give back, you know, probably would, would be kind of them. Um, and so I am very grateful that Boku gives us that time. I know there are lots of other companies that do give that time. Um, if you work for one of them, thank them. If you don't work for one of them, quit and go work for one that does because we wouldn't be here doing what it is we do without open source. So that's what I have to say about that. Uh, that's me, that's me, that's Boku. And uh, yeah, so I wanna talk about code smells today. Um, and code smells are generally, you know, generally pretty easy to spot, at least the obvious ones, and especially once you have some experience with, um, with writing code. They're generally pretty easy to spot. You may not always know what to do about them, but you will often like, have that feeling in your gut that there's something not quite right about those lines of code that you're seeing on the screen. And just like Phil said in almost the exact same slide that he had in his talk, except his was red with white letters and mine's green with white letters, um, they're suggestive of a deeper problem. They are indicative of a deeper problem. Everything may be fine, but they're suggestive that there's something else bad going on underneath that. You know when you come home and you're like, I should have taken the trash out. Um, it's kind of like that. Um, those are, you know, they smell. Uh, and the harm of code smells is, you know, there's, there's these obvious ones. You know, when you have crappy code, it's harder to debug. It's when there's a problem, it's harder to figure out the nature and the source of that problem. Um, when, if you are coming to a new code base and you, the code base is smelly, 
then working with that code base can be really challenging, can be really difficult. And maintenance is, is a tough thing when people have written uh, smelly code. And the biggest thing that I find, and the way that I made a lot of money for a few years, was um, features are really hard to add. You know, it's hard to add new stuff to bad code because the code was written in a way that, that anything that you'd, you, know, if you're just opening it in your text editor, the stuff might break. Um, and, and so features get a lot harder to add when your code is smelly. So those are sort of the traditional reasons why we care about this, but the the bigger reason um, in my mind, well, there's two two bigger reasons, two sort of reasons why you should care. You know, maybe you don't care if your code is maintainable, and maybe you don't care if features are hard to add because you get paid the same no matter how long it takes you. Um, but but the thing about smells, number one, smells beget other smells. Um, there's the broken window theory. Um, if you've read a Malcolm Gladwell book or read. Um, Coding, what's his name? Coding Horror, what's his real name? Jeff Atwood uh, has a blog post about this um, and it's in Pragmatic Programmer. And, you know, lots of people talk about this broken window theory where basically it, the idea is that in a neighborhood, if the neighborhood starts to decline, the decline becomes more precipitous. Uh, and so if, if people see code that didn't do, things as well as it could have done. You know, the code works. That's the important thing about smells and the sort of devious thing about smells is the code works. But it's not as good as it could be um, and there are smells there indicating that things are going to get difficult if you continue to work with this code. And so when you encounter code like that, and I know I've done it and probably you all have done it too, when you encounter code like that, it's really easy to decide Meh, this is good enough. Um, and so it's really important, especially when you're starting a new project, um, it's really important to have that at the top of your mind and be vigilant about it from the get-go. Again, like Phil said, you never come back and fix it later. Um, I'm going to show you how to fix it later, but the idea is that you don't do it in the first place. Maybe you make these mistakes while you're prototyping something or just like getting something working, but you don't want to commit this code to your project. Um, you certainly don't want it out in production because once it's there, it becomes harder and harder to take it back. And it becomes sort of a sign to your fellow developers that this, this is okay. We won't mind if you write code like this. The other thing about smells is that, and this, this is a thing that I really had to learn as a developer, is that until you learn how to spot these and eliminate these, it's really hard to level up. You're kind of stuck at this, at this level uh, as a developer. If you're writing repetitive code, if you're writing super complex functions, if you have HTML scattered all over your JavaScript, uh, it's really difficult to see opportunities when your code is not good. And so opportunities for abstraction, opportunities for reuse, opportunities for testing, um, or even how do I test this, um, you, those things can be really hard to see when your code is not as good as it could be. Um, so we're going to take a look at a few different code samples. This is probably, I've been here all day, I think I've watched every talk, and 
I probably have more code in the first three slides than has been, other than, again, Phil, like that one ASP tag is like more code than this, my whole presentation. Uh, but uh, there, there's going to be a lot of code in this talk. And um, this talk will be online. The slides are online, so you can check it out. There's a GitHub repo, so you can check it out. So I don't I'm not going to pick over every single line, but just talk about sort of some, some high-level concepts. Um, and look at smelly code, how to make it better, and then what opportunities we see once we take the time to make it better. So repetitive code is probably the number one smell that I see. And I get to see a lot of code. I get to see code from students. And I get, when I was doing consulting work for uh, several years, I got to see a lot of code. And, and repetitive code is probably the biggest smell, and also one of the easiest to take care of. So here's some code uh, where what it's doing doesn't super matter, but basically there's getting a date out of a date picker and using it to populate the day, month, and year uh, region. Can you see it? I, I'm having the same thing where being up close, this looks terrible. But I think from far away, it's probably hopefully OK. Um, Let's try that, see what happens. Uh, so this is some code where they're, they're using a date picker to update the day, month, and year region of a page, uh, or of uh, menu item one. And then they're using another date picker to update the day, month, and year region of menu item two. And you can almost imagine the developer, you know, they wrote that, and they were like, cool, it works. Um, even here, we've got some repetition going on that's, that's not ideal, where we've got we're making the same, we're making three selections, um, all with the same root of menu item one. And the right thing to do here would be to make that menu item one selection one time and then find the day, find the month, find the year using the find method. And by the way, um, all these examples are going to use jQuery just because that's probably what most of you are using, but they, there's nothing jQuery specific about any of these. Um, repetitive code is repetitive code. So you can, like I said, imagine the developer got this working and like we'll forgive them for that kind of repetitive selection. And then you know what happened, right? They went like that, and they hit Command C, and they went like that, hit Command V, changed a couple things, and they were like, score. Job is done. Let's have a beer. Um, and that's, again, that's fine for getting it working on your computer in your development environment to make sure that, like, yes, this code is, you know, this will work whether I'm working with menu item one or date picker, you know, end date or start date. That's fine. It should never make it into production, but it does all the time. So here's what we could do instead. Um, a function is a really great way to solve this problem. Um, we can have a function that takes that menu item selector, takes the um, date picker selector, and then does all that stuff that we were doing two times. It just does it one time. And um, you know, now we have a function that we pass in those two arguments, and, and stuff just happens. The cool thing is if there's later a menu item three and four and five and six and I don't know what, what 
what other kinds of dates you might have. You know, pick your birthday and put it in menu item three. Uh, if, if there are later more of these, and as soon as you have two of them, that's a good sign there might someday be three. Um, and certainly once you have three of them, stop and write a function to do this for you. Um, as soon as you have two of them, that's the first moment that you should be thinking like, hmm, how likely is it that this need is going to present itself again? Um, when you have the third occasion, the need has presented itself too many times that you're still doing it in this repetitive way. So once we see this, now we can see that, oh, we have this relationship between menu item one and start date and menu item two and end date. And now we can even take this and break it down even further using um, the each iteration method, iterate over the keys and values in an object, um, and then this object makes it really, really easy if we have more cases of the same thing. So we just use these key value pairs as the arguments to our function here. Um, and we've gotten rid of all of that repetitiveness, we've made our code more reusable, um, and made it so that the next time this, this presents itself, we aren't copying and pasting and feeling guilty about it. So here's some more repetitive code. It's a little bit different this time. Here we're, um, you know, someone has selected something from a, from a select menu, and based on what they have selected in the select menu, we're going to center a map on a location. And so we're like, okay, well, if they chose Ireland, then let's center the location on Ireland. If they chose Clare, we'll center it on Clare. If they chose Dublin, we'll center it on Dublin. It's like, that's cool. What are you going to do when they center it on, you know, Amsterdam or London or anywhere else in the world besides those three places? And maybe this will, again, maybe this will never present itself. Maybe they know that whatever it is that this user is selecting never in a million years will be anything other than Ireland, Clare, or Dublin. But that's pretty risky, and even if that is true, there's still a better way to do this. So we can, you know, here, we're literally doing, you know, the same thing. What changes from one location to the next is the latitude and longitude and the zoom level of our map. Those three things change from one location to another. So when we have a set of things, a set of data that are related to another thing, such as a location, then an object is a really good way to handle this instead. Um, you know, get rid of those repetitive if statements and have an object that says, for Ireland, here's the information. For Claire, here's the information, etc. And then we just look up which location we need from that object and then have all that map centering code happen one time instead of happening three different times. The other um, you know, kind of fun thing about this code um, is that when it gets to, let's say that the user has selected Ireland. When it gets to here in this code, if the user selected Ireland, we're done. We don't need to check if they selected Claire. We don't need to check if they selected Dublin. We know they selected Ireland. We can throw in, if we were to leave this code like this, we can throw in a return at the end of this and be out, um, not make our code do any more work than it has to do. Uh, but generally, the, you wouldn't want to have those ifs at all. You just want to have this straight up lookup. The cool thing 
once we realize that we can put this data into an object rather than spelling it out for each location, um, there's a couple cool things. Number one, it becomes really easy to add another location. We just add another, um, another key value pair to that object. So it becomes really easy to add another location um, and support another location as long as we provide that same data. The other thing is, we only need one of these locations at any one time, apparently. Um, and so we could store this data on our, in another file or on our server somewhere where it belongs and where we can manage it. You not have it in our JavaScript. You know, what if the boss calls up and is like, I don't think the zoom level of H is right for Dublin. Now you have to go into your JavaScript in order to fix that. Uh, but you could potentially have, and you have to know which file to go into in order to fix it. And it becomes like you're the one person who can actually change the zoom level on Dublin. And that's no good. And so once we've taken it out to an object, then we see the opportunity to do stuff like have that in a separate file, load it in via Ajax, and um, that should be get JSON. Shame on me. Uh, not that that'll get saved, but uh, we, can, we can get that data loaded in via Ajax and then center our map where we need our map to be centered. Now we can support as many locations as we want, and maintaining those locations isn't up to the JavaScript developer who wrote that code. It's up to anyone who knows how to edit that, that data source, which maybe is managed in your fantastic CMS. Who knows? Another one, this one, all these other uh, bits of code that I've shown you so far, um, to some extent I made them up, to some extent I saw them uh, from people asking questions in the jQuery IRC channel. Um, this one's real, and this one is from a very large company that at least in the US, I don't know, maybe, maybe you've even heard of them here, but they're from a very large networking company. Um, I, I kind of obfuscated it a little bit, so it's not entirely clear. But uh, yeah, so they, they wanted me to do a training, and they sent me, they wanted me to do an advanced JavaScript training for them, and they sent me some code. And I was like, whoa, 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 we might want to slow down on that advanced thing. Um, and uh, you know, let's, let's talk about this. So right away, right away, uh, the thing that you see in this code is this bit of amazingness. Um, so one, two, three, four, five, six arguments. I think in the real function there were actually eight, um, but I cut it down to six arguments being passed into to this function. And the best part, like truly the best part, is like that was a real usage of this function. Can't make that up. That's good stuff. Um, so. <laughs> Uh, it's almost not even worth talking about what the rest of this code is doing because the whole point is that it's really hard to tell what this code is doing because this is a 33-line function, if I recall correctly. Um, it, what it's doing is updating two table cells uh, in a row. And so it's doing, it's doing that based on all of this information that's been passed into it. Um, and the, the logic is really just, it's, it's hard to follow, and of course there are no tests to tell you what this should actually end up doing. Um, and so you don't even really know if you're doing it right, if you accidentally like, should have said standard price instead of not standard price or something like that. 
and so it is uh, finding these two uh, these two table cells, and um, man, typos abound. Um, it's finding these two table cells and uh, and updating them with some HTML. And again, the reason we know just at a glance that this is bad is two reasons. Number one, all those arguments coming in. Number two, the fact that it's 33 lines long and like nested ifs. Um, those are both pretty good signs, or all three of those things are pretty good signs that like this is this is due for some refactoring. Uh, so what we can do instead is all that information about the price, the standard price, the discount price, whether the price is deferred or prorated or all those things, we can put that into an object instead, uh, instead of having it be individual arguments. Um, and then we're going to, instead of having this one big function that's responsible for not only figuring out what the HTML is that goes into these table cells, but also updating, you know, finding those table cells and then putting the HTML in the table cells, we're going to break that into three separate tasks. So we're going to have a fairly simple function that just figures out what the HTML is for the price cell. We're going to have a fairly simple function. You can see it here. We're going to have a fairly simple function that figures out the HTML for the discount table cell. And then we're going to have a function, this update row that takes the row, whatever we figured out should be the HTML for the price cell, whatever we figured out should be the HTML for the discount cell, and we're going to have this function be responsible solely for doing, solely for taking that HTML. It doesn't care what the HTML is. It doesn't care how you figured out what it was. It just says, thank you for this HTML. I will put it in a TD now. Um, and so we have three much more understandable functions than that one big function. We haven't really you know, gained anything as far as code length, um, but we've made it a lot easier to read for someone who's coming to this code for the first time um, or for someone who's deciding whether I'm going to teach you the advanced JavaScript class or the basic one. And um, what's really cool, though, is now we can write tests. Like, testing that other function, was, it's possible. I'm not, I'm not going to say that it's not possible. Um, but you would be writing kind of functional tests at that point for, like, did the right thing eventually happen? And if the wrong thing happened, you would have to go in and debug line by line to figure out where that wrong thing happened. But now we can write a test that says, hey, when I gave you this discount HTML and this price HTML, did you put it in the table where it belongs? Good work. And then we can write another one that says, hey, when I gave you price information that said the discount price was zero, did you send me back the right HTML? And so we can state all of these expectations really, really clearly. I'm not saying that you shouldn't still write functional tests, but you can state your expectations of these individual functions of this whole big function. Um, and again, the real whole big function is like a work of art. Um, and, and I initially tried to include it in this, but it was like it would have taken me the whole 50 minutes to try to explain what was going on in it. So, um, so tests are a big benefit 
the ability to test, the, the ability to write tests um, are a really big benefit of writing better, cleaner, more organized code. Um, again, that old function that they had, it worked. It worked just fine. You know, it's on a site that probably serves like certainly millions a month of page views. Um, so it works. Uh, but but uh, they, if, if anything goes wrong, they don't know where it went wrong, and they don't have tests to prove that it's working. And so they might discover that it's not working by finding out that they just sold a product for $0 by mistake, uh, or that they told a customer that the product was going to be $0, and then the back-end system charged them 150 which is possibly worse. Um, this is one, I, I could talk about this right here pretty much like all day. Um, asynchronous code is a thing that, even if you're a fairly experienced developer in another language, uh, coming to JavaScript, learning how to deal with the asynchronicity of JavaScript, learning how to deal specifically with the asynchronicity of Ajax, um, can be really challenging. And we routinely see people who you know, are assigning a value to a variable in their success callback on, on an Ajax request. And then two lines later, outside of the Ajax request, they're trying to use the value that they assigned because they, they, this, this concept of asynchronicity, we're so used to code that just line two runs, line three, line four, line five, all the way down. And um, with Ajax, the code on line three might run like a second after the code on line five or even longer, or maybe not at all, because something went wrong. And so that can be a hard thing for, for people to get used to. What's really exciting, um, what's been really exciting for me has been the introduction of deferreds and promises into jQuery. How many people, how many people have heard of deferreds and promises? All right, cool. How many of you, that's like most everyone, probably like 80% of you, how many of you have used them successfully? All right, more than a few of you, nowhere near half, uh, I would say. So I'm going to talk about them just a little bit. Uh, so here's, a, here's an example where we have a function that's making two AJAX requests, and we need to have both of them completed before we can execute the callback that was provided to the function. And so you'll, this is probably the most... Um, I don't mean this is in, in a mean way at all, but this is probably the most naive way to achieve this, is fire the first Ajax request. When you get a successful response back, then fire the second one. The problem with this, of course, is that you just lost a lot of the benefit of asynchronicity, because now if each of these requests take 300 milliseconds, you're 600 milliseconds down the road before you're actually calling that callback. But because browsers can make more than one request at a time, if you could have fired them both at the same time and then known when they were done, then you could have probably saved most of 300 of those milliseconds. So another way that you'll often see people doing this is fire them simultaneously and then um, trigger some counter when each of them succeeds, and then check to see if that counter is two. If that counter is two, then we know we can fire the callback. So that's another, another way that you'll see people 
solve this. Neither in the world where deferreds and promises exist, I am going to go out and go, go on a limb and call both of those smells, actually. Um, they work, but they're not fully taking advantage of the tools available to you. And because you're not taking advantage of the tools available to you, you're missing out on some opportunity and some really nice opportunities uh, that you don't get with a solution like this. So here's what we can do instead. Um, I've shortened those AJAX calls down to just get JSON because otherwise this gets long. Um, so I've shortened those AJAX calls down to get JSON. With, as of jQuery 1.5 and Dojo long, long ago had, like I don't even know from the beginning perhaps, um, has had this, I think like, I can't remember if it was MooTools or it might have even been MokiKit that first introduced promises. Like this concept has been around for a long time, this concept of promises and deferreds. But in jQuery 1.5, we saw it arrive in jQuery, and that has sort of made these a mainstream tool that people are becoming much more familiar with and aware of. And so in the old days, pre-jQuery 1.5, uh, so pre-early, late 2010, early 2011, I think, um, pre-jQuery 1.5, the return value of jQuery.ajax or jQuery.get or jQuery.post, the return value of that was, a, was a, you got something back, but you basically got the raw XML HTTP request. Like it wasn't a super useful object unless you understood that, that API. In jQuery 1.5, they made it so that instead what you get back is what's called a deferred. And this deferred is magic. This deferred is awesome. So here's, here's a case where we're using the deferred. And the idea of a deferred is that it gives you the ability to register your interest in the eventual outcome of an asynchronous thing. And so if eventually it fails, you can say, I want to know about that. If eventually it succeeds, you can say, I want to know about that. If it has already failed by the time you're registering your interest, or if it's already succeeded by the time you're registering your interest, it'll let you know about that too. And so what we can do here is say, I want to know about this people request. I want to know about this task request. And we can pass both of those to this also magical method called when. Um, and so we end up writing this code that like, reads almost, it's very English. <laughs> um, like it's very much like a sentence. When these two things are done, then do this other thing. That's what we're saying in this code. When these two things are done, when this people request and this task request is done, then run that callback that was passed into our get two things function. Um, we have to do a little bit of weirdness. I'm going to make this go away on the next slide, this thing where we have to uh, access the zeroth item of what's returned. Um, but already we have like dramatically shortened our uh, code, and we have, um, we have completely managed the simultaneity, um, but the fact that we need to wait for both of these to be done. Uh, we've completely managed that without jumping through any hoops at all. So that's cool. The opportunity that we get out of this is even cooler. So that whole people zero and tasks zero was pretty nasty. Um, this get JSON returns a deferred, 
And like we talked about, we can then call the pipe method on that deferred. And that lets us change the, basically return the ultimate resolution of this deferred. And so we can say, okay, give me what you, what you got. I'm gonna tell you what I want you to give to everyone else. And so that's what we achieve here, is so we can say, okay, I know you got this object that has a people property, and that's where the people I'm after really are. Um, we can say, everyone who consumes the result of this, they really just want that list of people. They don't want the object that has a people property that points to the, that contains an array of people. They just want that array. And so we can sort of change the, change the um, result of that AJAX request and make that changed result available to everyone who consumes this on down the line. So we do the same thing with tasks. We, again, alter what's, what's returned so that what we're exposing to everyone else is nicer than what we got. And then we just pass this callback as what we want to do when we're done, when the people request and the task request are done, and when this piping thing has already happened. Let's run that callback. So that's cool. This is the other exciting thing, is we're returning this from this function. And so now whoever called this function has the opportunity to register yet more interest in the ultimate outcome of this. And so they, maybe this deferred gets passed on up you know, to who knows. If you want to do something in addition to this callback that was passed in initially, then you can. We could even eliminate this callback, the callback that we're passing into the function entirely and just return the deferred. Or even better, even better, we can return um, the promise, um, which is a read-only um, deferred, basically. So anyone who has a promise can learn about what happened, but can't change what happened. Can't um, or resolve an asynchronous thing before the real asynchronous thing resolved. So pretty fun stuff that you can do with deferreds. If there is one thing that you get from this talk, um, you know, eliminate your smells and yay, but if there's one thing you get from this talk is if you haven't really spent some time learning about deferreds and promises, please do, because they will change the way that you write code and they will change the way that you think about asynchronicity in JavaScript, full stop. They're, they are a transformational thing. So the last thing I want to talk about is how um, writing Mintier code opens the doors to bigger abstractions, abstractions that you just, like, you couldn't see, you couldn't necessarily see the path from point A to point B, or point A to point C. It's like you have to get to B first before you can get to C. And so cleaning up these smells, eliminating these smells, leaves you with code that you'll start to look at it and be like, oh, I could do that and that and that. And, that. Um, and that's, that's, again, going back to what I said at the beginning where you really, you have to get good at removing these in order to kind of level up as a JavaScript developer, spotting them and eliminating them, because as soon as you start spotting them and start eliminating them, you become, um, your eyes are opened to other possibilities. So the last smell that I want to talk about, 
in that regard is um, HTML in your JavaScript. Um, we've all done it, and sometimes it's even excusable, but mostly not. So here is a function where we get some data, um, and then we manipulate that data a little bit. And then we're generating some HTML and you know, by concatenation. And then we're throwing that HTML into another element. The problem, well, the problem with this is, is so many. Um, the biggest problem with this is kind of like the, that location data. Now it takes a JavaScript developer to, it takes the person who knows where this code is in order to change your HTML. And so suddenly you have this HTML that has nothing really to do with JavaScript at all, living in your JavaScript, where the, the number of people who can go in and change this is necessarily lower than if it lived somewhere independently of the JavaScript. It's also just nasty. Like, man, this is, this is ugly, ugly stuff. Um, and really easy, I know I've done it, to like, miss a quote or get a double quote where I meant a single quote or whatever. Um, and like, yeah, and goodness help you if, if you aren't, you know, carefully escaping the content that you're throwing into this and all of that. Like, things can go downhill fast with this. Um, we also have this function, probably the other smell about this is that this one function is doing a number of things. Number one, it's going out and getting the data. Number two, it's manipulating the data. And number three, it's turning that data into HTML. And number four, it's putting that HTML into the page. So this one function that's probably eh, 20 lines long is doing kind of four distinct tasks. And again, if you went to test this, all you could really test is, was the eventual outcome right? You don't have a good insight into where something went wrong, if something went wrong. So the answer to this, and probably a lot of you are doing that. This was a way more like controversial and mind-bending thing a couple of years ago. Um, probably a lot of you are doing this by now. The answer to this is client-side templating. So, um, so with with this, one way to uh, get client-side templates into your application is to just throw them in a script tag. If, you, if your script tag isn't of type text JavaScript, then the browser's not going to try to execute it as code and isn't going to freak out. And we just throw an ID on that. And now we can look up that template in our markup, in our HTML, grab the text from it, pass it to the underscore templating uh, functionality. And now our code becomes um, much simpler. So we've broken that get tasks uh, section out to um, its own function, so that's not cluttering things up. We're taking advantage of the fact that we know about deferreds now. So we're, we're making that request, we're munging the data, um, and then we are um, using that data to populate our template. And so what we end up with is when we call template on that tasks data, then we get the HTML that we, that we were you know, concatenating before. Um, we get it, but that the HTML is no longer in our JavaScript. That template lives outside of our JavaScript. 
Um, we can even do one better, and um, we're not going to go through all of this example here, but we can even do one better. Of course, if we put that template in our HTML, that template is coming down with every load of that HTML. And so we can't, if anything else changes about our whole HTML page, then that's not a cacheable resource. And so if we're using lots of templates in our code, then we can't, um, we, we may be sending down quite a bit of data in our HTML page that's not cacheable if we're using that script tag strategy. There are times when that's fine. There are times when that's not fine. Um, if you're in a situation where you want to be able to cache that template, then you know, again, this is the opportunity that we achieve by getting that HTML out of our JavaScript to begin with. We can now have that template be a resource that lives on our server. And we can load it in. We can cache it, um, you know, store, it on our, uh, store it in a cache so that we don't ever have to make that request again.